Hey, Dennis, thank you for pulling it off with all these young guys. <laughs> Define young. Define young. Yeah, it's a state of mind. Well, it's good to be back. Um, most of you know that mo myself, uh, Sharon, Gord Giesbrecht, and Rick Weeb went to the Ukraine last couple weeks uh, to encourage and to edify the local church and also to teach in the local university in Lutsk. I can honestly say that um, we were well received and that the hospitality got a little bit of feedback on stage. I don't know if you can hear it. Uh, the hospitality extended to us was beyond belief. And uh, we started off in the, the, the city of Lviv. We did uh, some meetings there. We went on to Trinivsi, which was a, what, a four hour, five, four or five hour ride away. Eventually um, made our way back to Lutsk, where the university was. We traveled to Rivna, which was a, uh, uh, a church plant that we helped start a couple of years ago. About 50, 60 people, solid going on there. And uh, we were also, and I, I kept what we were doing limited on social media only because we had to, because we were in a red zone. Um, we landed and all of a sudden the place went red with COVID. And so we were actually able to get into the prison. And there Sharon was able to speak to a group of women. The prison is very similar to Hedenly. Um, if you want to get an idea of what a Ukrainian prison is like, go to Netflix, Prisons of the World, and watch the one on Ukraine. Although that's in the eastern Ukraine, I would say that that's almost exactly what we were in. And uh, we have numerous stories regarding there. 17 women amongst 300 prisoners were there. We, those are the 17 that we were able to speak to, as well as teenagers uh, who were there. And um, we were able to provide for the women some basic necessities, too, on behalf of our church. And uh, we've also been helping the jail because, figure this out, 300 prisoners, they're allotted by the government a dollar a day for food. So we work with the local church, and let's, Pastor Sergey and, and Katya, who have been here uh, pre-COVID Christmas, um, we work with them and, and through them to, to meet the needs. We've uh, provided some money for them to um, uh, improve the cells, if I can say this. Uh, they're limited to 300 prisoners. You're allowed one shower a week. And so with the teenagers that are there, uh, we have helped them build two new cells that actually have a shower for the teens in there. And so we were able to see what was going on. Um, we were able to visit a children's shelter that uh, we provided bedding and mattresses a, a couple of years or a year ago. And to be honest, um, that visit broke our hearts. Uh, all due respect, there was a couple of children that Sharon wanted to take home right away. Um, and there's... I'll get through this. Two girls, new to the shelter, it's a precursor to the orphanage. What they try to do is that the kids are taken from their families. They try to reintegrate them back to the family. So if the parents can't do it, can an aunt and uncle or, or um, a grandparent take these kids? These two beautiful little girls, I kid you not, one was about this high, the other one wasn't much higher. And we just knew that these girls have gone through horrific, horrific stuff. I'll get through. Give me a sec.
we were there. My phone goes off. Somebody says, I guess I did a post to share. Somebody says, I'm going to give $5,000 to the shelter. So we sat down with the administration, and again, we don't go and just give money frivolously. We actually work with Pastor Sergey and Katya. We actually give them the money. They then, through accountability processes, go like that. So I said to them, I said to Sergey, I got, I got a text here. Somebody wants to give five grand. What can we do? So they began to tell us, you know, the needs of the shelter. Um, they had, a, what, 30, 30 kids, Rick? Is that the number? Yeah. Um, so about 30 kids there, two washing machines, regular washing machines, two dryers, one of which was broken. So immediately we, we purchased a dryer on behalf of our church for them, had it delivered and everything else, but uh, they also needed a stove. They needed numerous other things of which that $5,000 that was given is going to go towards them to buy. Um, it's, it's unbelievable sometimes what happens. We concluded our ministry there in the city of Lutsk. We uh, had a great time at the university. All four of us were able to lecture for a couple of days, both students and faculty. And uh, we also did a mini conference for leaders. And now we're back. We're COVID-free, just saying. Uh, hugs if you want. Uh, and thank you, Jesus, we're COVID-free. Uh, probably one of the biggest things, the stories I think we all have. If you want to talk to Gord, if you want to talk to Rick, I don't know if Gord's here today. I know Rick is and Sharon. We got some great stories, just crazy, COVID crazy stories. Uh, but we're back, we're safe, and uh, feel free to ask us, have us over for coffee. We'll gladly share. And that's where we've been. Last two weeks, you've had my friends Jeff Price from um, Woodstock, Ontario, and Brent Canelon from Langley. And I understand that Brent shared a little bit too much. Last week, uh, my phone was blowing up in the Ukraine as we were trying to have dinner, and if you missed what happened, you can go back online and turn it to about the 40-minute mark in Brent's sermon, and uh, we can go from there. So uh, we pick it up at First Peter. As we walk through the Bible, that's one of the things we do here at Soul, pick a book of the Bible, walk through it, and it's interesting how it addresses issues in life, and that's where we find ourselves. First Peter chapter 2, verses 11 to 25. And the whole point of the letter that Peter is writing to the church, and he's reminding the church how Christians on this side of eternity, how we're supposed to live, all right? And in fact, the way that we live actually does matter. In chapter 1, Peter established who we are as God's people through faith in Christ. He, decided, he described why believers are called by God to lead holy lives, to live holy lives, uh, lives different from those in the world around us, and that God has set us aside as believers for a different purpose. And now Peter begins to get very specific about what it looks like from a day-to-day -day reality. He begins by telling the Christians to put away some specific negative attitudes and actions. You can read that on your own. Instead, we're supposed to grow our appetite for the pure spiritual food that's available in Jesus Christ. Why does this matter? Well, it matters because Jesus is the long-prophesied cornerstone in the new spiritual house which God is building. Jesus is the chosen and precious one. And those who put their trust in him are also now stones in this house. 
Uh, they are a holy priesthood, each one, as a believer, each one of us serving in the house with a responsibility to offer ourselves as spiritual sacrifices. And, and Peter goes on and says, and those who reject Jesus are actually destined to stumble over him. But those who trust in him will receive honor with him. And so believers have been called out of the darkness into God's light. So then it matters all the more that we lead and live good lives now. So then, we represent God to the world around us. And today we're going to examine why this behavior is important for us as Christians. Now, I struggled with this message. I'll just say that up front in light of where we are in today's society. So I'm going to put it out there, and I'm just going to let it sit. The people that Peter were writing to were under the oppressive reign of the Roman Empire and Nero, who was sitting on the throne at that time. He was doubtless one of the most nefarious, cruel leaders to ever occupy a human throne. Peter is very much aware of the dangers faced of living under an oppressive government. The Roman Empire was widely recognized as a predominantly evil empire. Both its rulers and its subjects were known for state-instituted idol worship and celebrated debauchery. This is the world in which the early church is immersed. And so apart from widespread wickedness, the early church was not well favored by its neighboring citizens. And this is due in part to the Christian rejections of all forms of polytheism. Devotion to one true God was a disruption of the Roman way of life. It didn't fit well with them. And it was only actually tolerated for a short period of time before the state began to widely persecute Christians for their faith in Jesus. And even from the early days of the church, persecution was a part of the church's everyday experience. And all that being said, the believers that Peter was writing to were probably accustomed uh, to not fitting in with their neighbors, their Roman neighbors specifically. Some of them may have been imprisoned for their faith at some point or another. They lived in a time when being a Christian costed something. And for some, that cost was something that they paid for with their lives. Like the people in Peter's day, I honestly believe we're living in a sinful and rebellious world. The standards and morals of today's society are no different from those just a few years ago. Someone pointed out the fact that years ago women would wear bathing suits, right? down to their ankles. See that in historical pictures. Those bathing suits then went down to their knees. A few years ago, those bathing suits went down to their hips. A friend of mine who came back from France said, now there are some women who don't even wear them down to the water. <laughs> right? But our times have changed, have they not? And what was accepted a few years ago as proper is now rejected, and what was rejected then is now accepted. And so you can get several years in prison for killing certain types of animals these days, but aborting an unborn child is not only legal, it's encouraged by many. 
We live in a culture that wants to believe in two contradictory things at the same time. We don't believe in God, therefore we don't believe in absolute morals. And yet we are the most moralistic preaching culture that has ever existed. We want to save the animals. We want to save the planet, right? It's global change, climate change. We want to save the trees. We want to fight for justice of all people. We want everybody in the world to be good. In all of these things, everybody has to think like me. And if you don't think like me, I'm intolerant of you and I hate you. But we should be all tolerating and loving. Unless, of course, you disagree with me, then I won't be tolerant of you. And so we come across as moralists, but we don't believe in moral objectives. We believe in subjectivism. There is no external objective truth. And what has happened in our culture is we've lost our moral minds. And Peter is writing to Christians, Christian people living in a time just as we are today. And he's sharing how we are to live in a sinful world, in a Christ-rejecting society. And today, Christian views and values are no longer tolerated as the high road of morality. As a matter of fact, we're scoffed at as being backward and bigoted. And the world considers us a subculture. On a talk radio program, I heard the host refer to evangelical Christians as religious nuts over and over again. And if he used derogatory terms like that to describe Jews or people of color or homosexuals or Muslims, he would be off the air in a minute and in a lawsuit within days. But it's popular now to make fun of Bible-believing Christians. And Christians are being viewed as those our society would be better off without. And as we face a hostile environment as believers, the pressure to go on along with the crowd actually increases. And Peter knew the same was true for the people of the generation in which he lived. And here we see him calling for them and for us as we read it today to behave in a manner which pleases God. In the first book of this verse, Peter says that he's writing to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout much of the Roman Empire. Here in verse 11, he calls them aliens and strangers. Some of them were likely Jews who lived far from home. Others were believers who had been displaced and scattered because of persecution. Peter is reminding them that, that the place they resided was not their permanent home. They're aliens, they're strangers, but heaven is your permanent home. But while they're still waiting for their heavenly home, how should they live? How should they relate to the authorities they lived under? How should they relate to their earthly masters? And these were some of the questions they would have been facing. And these questions are very, very applicable to us today. We're called to be light for Christ in front of the people around us. The believers of Peter's day actually lived under a microscope. Christianity was a new thing. Jews were openly hostile to the faith. Uh, Romans and Greeks were skeptical, treating believers with contempt and mockery. The people around them would study their lives to look for anything negative which they could accuse them about. Wild stories began to circulate about the believers. Many Romans believed that Christianity was an immoral cult. 
that Christians were incestuous cannibals who were highly immoral. Why? Well, first, believers had these things called love feasts, which were basically a combination between taking the Lord's Supper and a prayer service. Right? They were largely held in secret due to the fact of persecution. So then rumors began to spread that the immoral things were going on during these love feasts. Believers also called each other brother and sister, which contributed to the false idea that they were incestuous. Finally, believers would drink the blood of Christ and eat his body. And so rumors grew and stories spread that believers were also cannibals. And these and other terrible things were being said about the believers during the time of Peter. So Peter writes this. He says, Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day that he visits us. Now the NIV, the New International Version, misses much of the point of the rendering here in the verse when it actually calls it sinful rather than fleshly. Fleshly desires are sinful. Let me just say that here. But it's, it's not Peter's entire point. Fleshly desires are earthly desires that pertain to this life, that pertain to our flesh. Fleshly desires are those illicit desires which originated because of the fall. And they are the basis of our attachment to this world, to Satan, to sin. So fleshly desires are these human desires which stem from our depravity and seek fulfillment outside the boundaries of righteousness. It's like Paul writing, why do I do the things that I don't want to do and why don't I do the things I know I should? It's just what's wired within us. And they simply can't be overcome by human effort. As a matter of fact, they're only overcome by the power of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit as we walk in the Spirit as new creations in Jesus Christ. And so these desires we have are not sinful acts, but they're desires to perform acts which are basically for our self-gratification rather than for the glory of God. So again, having the desires not sinful, it's acting out on them and carried out with these desires is a result of sin. And Peter addresses this later on in chapter 3 when he actually says, for you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans chose to do, living in debauchery and lust and drunkenness and orgies, carousing and detestable idolatry. And so what Peter is saying is that these desires are former desires, but they're also desires which have an ongoing appeal. And Peter gives a very concise word of advice as to how we should deal with these fleshly desires. He says, avoid them. Again, we have desires, but we need to avoid acting out on them. He moves on on how we should live our lives. And he assumes that we'll not be physically separated from unbelievers, right? We know Christians uh, will live amongst them. That's, that's obviously what's happening. And therefore, our conduct as Christians in a daily manner of life should set us apart from the world. And Peter expects Christians to believe and behave in a way significantly different from unbelievers who are only of this world. And so, for Peter, the living out of our faith is not to be private, but public. And I've heard it said, you've heard it said, my religious beliefs are a very personal thing, which translated means, 
I don't want to talk about my faith. And yet Jesus never allowed us the option of having a strictly personal faith. The essence of the Old Testament law is summed up in two commands. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. One's love for God and his love for his neighbor requires, by nature, attitudes and actions that are open to public scrutiny. Peter's words earlier in chapter 2 make it evident that the Christian's conduct is to serve as a public witness. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Jesus' words recorded in Matthew 5 tells us, You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. And in the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. So Jesus expected his disciples to stand apart from the world in which they lived. He taught that it was impossible to be a true disciple and not be noticed as light in a dark place. And so the Christians in the early church who are reading Peter's letter, they're experiencing brutal persecution from Nero. Their natural desires would be to rebel against the emperor and rebel against the authorities. But here Peter is saying that the right way forward is not to rebel, but to instead to live holy lives. And that will include, as he writes, submit yourself for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to the governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. For it's God's will that by doing good you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Wow. And this is exactly how the first Christians lived. Even in the face of brutal persecution, they submitted themselves to every human authority. Now, there may be extreme situations when we, it could be acceptable and right for Christians to disobey the state. When authorities make it illegal to meet or to pray or to worship or to evangelize, as we saw in communist Russia or in China or in North Korea or Afghanistan. There, the Christians still met in secret. So is it ever right for Christians to participate in a revolution and to overthrow a government? Obviously, it's God who sets up and takes down rulers. And he does it through people. But should Christians be a part of such? For example, when the government is evil, such as Nazi Germany or communist China. I have to admit, I'm not a Calvinist, but I tend to agree with John Calvin, who states that the only command given to Christians is to obey and suffer. And so we should be hesitant to think that God has entrusted the revolutionary task to us. And yet at the same time, we are responsible to speak out against evil, whether it's practiced by rulers or citizens. 
Christians in South Africa felt that they were justified in rebelling against the immoral system of apartheid, and so they rose up. But we're in North America. We're in Canada. We're not facing that here in our nation. Theologian J.I. Packer wrote, he says, It's a paradox of the Christian life that the more profoundly one is concerned about heaven and the more deeply one cares about God's will being done on earth. Sir Frederick Catherwood is a Christian member of the European Parliament. He put it this way. He said, try to improve society is not worldliness, but love. To wash your hands of society is not love, but worldliness. Christian citizens should be good citizens. And the main way we do that is by submitting to our human government. And submission is a dirty word for us here in North America. But Peter uses it extensively throughout this book. And we'll get into it further as we continue to walk. For, for us, the important message and the general principle is very clear. Is that Christians should obey the governing authorities. Because this is what God expects and requires believers to do. And naturally, the believers in the Roman Empire would want to know how that they were to relate to the government. Because this government was pagan. Its leaders worshipped idols. Tax money was used for unjust wars and for building temples to false gods. Christians were actively persecuted and killed. Should they actively revolt? Should they practice civil disobedience? Should they refuse to pay taxes to fund these evil projects? Should they escape to some uninhabited region and set up a Christian nation? And actually... Peter answers all these questions in his answer. And it's very simple. He says, submit. Submit. Obey. If believers had been paying attention, this was not new information. As a matter of fact, Jesus told the Jews in Matthew chapter 17, what did he say? He said, give Caesar what is Caesar's. And give to God what is God's. I want to do a survey this morning. Will you participate with me? I have a question to ask and I want to see a show of hands. Who is happy with the civic government? Seriously, not one hand. This is online. There's not one hand that went up in this place. Okay, second question. Who is happy with the provincial government? Oh, I got a couple of hands. That's awesome. All right. The government. All right. Who is happy with the federal government? Okay, we're in the West. Maybe I shouldn't ask, ask this question, right? God established governments for a reason. The purpose of human government is to promote justice and peace in society and upholding law and order by maintaining reasonable national defense. So no matter how bad you think our government is, it's actually certainly better than no government at all. While authorities may be corrupt, they still generally enact good laws. Murder, theft, assault, many more crimes are illegal, obviously, but infrastructure is built, which makes our life a little bit easier. Our lives are more stable and secure because God has seen fit to establish governments. Paul said something very similar when he wrote to the Roman Corinthians 
Christians around the same time. Allow me to read a long passage, chapter 13 of Romans. What does he write? He says, Let everybody be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, whoever rebels against the authorities rebelling against what God has instituted, and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from fear of the one of authority? Then do what is right, and you will be commended. For the one in authority is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. They are God's servants, agents of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Therefore, it's necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of the possible punishment, but also as a matter of conscience. I just want to let that sit there. This is also why you pay taxes. For the authorities are God's servants who give their full time to governing. Give to everyone what you owe them. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. Let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt. What is the continuing debt? To love one another, forever loves has fulfilled the law. So what's our role? Our role is to submit and obey. And we should submit. Why? For the Lord's sake, since God ordains civilian government. And by submitting to our civilian government, we, in essence, are submitting to Him. Being a good citizen means being a good testimony. Verse 15 tells us that by doing good, we can silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. And there's a whole lot of that going on in our culture. Careful with the amens because there may be a turn in this message. So, what do we do? We got to go on with our command. We have to carry out our duty to Christ. We have to remain loving towards a lost world. Our duty is to continue to faithfully be a witness, even when we are misunderstood, even when we are ridiculed. And people may claim that Christians are bad citizens, that they're loners, that they're not good for the economy, that they're not good workers, or they're not good employees, but we as believers have to live in such a way to prove them wrong. And we must respect the laws and the rules of our country. And we are foreign guests, as Peter put it, in another country. And I think this is even more important here. We need to follow the visa and other regulations and requirements that our governments put out. In the Ukraine, the Christians were walking around, some of them were walking around with fake vaccine passports. I called them out. We talked about character and integrity. Should I say more? You think about it, we follow traffic rules. We should be registering our businesses legally. We should pay our taxes. We should be good employees. Our actions, people can attract people to Christ or they can repel people from Christ. And so do you live in such a way that you're eager to tell people that you're a Christian or that you're embarrassed? 
Do any of us ever complain about our government? Pastoral confessions. I do. And what does it accomplish? Absolutely nothing. Sitting around and complaining accomplishes nothing except for adding to our own sins, as I've figured it out, since we're commanded, and I hate this passage of Scripture that says, do all things without grumbling and complaining. The verse says do. We should do something. And I think if each of us decided to spend the same amount of time we normally spend complaining about our governments as keyboard warriors and use that time to pray for them instead, then maybe we would see positive change. The one thing that would definitely change is our attitude, our own attitude and our own outlook. And so what's, what's the result of living our life this way as believers? Verse 15 says, look, you're going to silence the foolish talk of foolish men, the ignorance of foolish men. In other words, our actions speak louder than our words. We may tell others around us that Christians are good employees and Christians are good for society, but the people around you are looking at our actions. Do you live in the way that you say you do? And if they see your life change, if they see your upright testimony, if they see that you are submissive to authorities, even unbelievers, then their criticisms have to stop. And then maybe they will want to know about this Jesus who you're following. And when it comes to politics, we need to remember that while God uses civil governments to accomplish his purposes, and thus it's proper then for Christians to serve in political leadership, to be involved in political process. I don't have an issue with that at all. It's not about setting up a Christian state because evangelism is God's primary means of dealing with world problems and bringing lasting change. And if we get sidetracked and to try to win political victories for our cause, but don't win men and women to Christ, we fail. And so believers, Peter tells the believers that they're to submit to the government. He goes on, he starts talking about masters. And some of the believers were slaves at this time. You know, should they stay with their masters or they sh should they run away? He writes, slaves in reverent fear of God. Submit yourselves to your masters, not only to those who are good and considerate, but to those who are harsh. For it's commendable if somebody bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because they are conscious of God. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. I think when we read this passage, there's many of us who, who have to ask the question, does the Bible condone slavery? Because I know that that's been in some of my threads, some of the talk out there. And I think I have to answer that question first before we move on. And the first thing you should know is that neither slavery in the New Testament times nor slavery under the Mosaic Covenant is the same sort of slavery that occurred in modern times. 
where people are stolen from their families, where they're put on ships, they're sold to other countries. All right? So Roman slavery is not like the American Civil War slavery. As a matter of fact, Roman slaves were paid, they even had some sort of rights. But the Bible is very clear that stealing people for any reason, including making them slaves, is a sin. We see it in Exodus 21. He who kidnaps a man, whether he sells him or he is found in his possession, shall surely be put to death. This verse already shows that those engaging in the slave trade deserve death, basically. So slavery in the Old Testament times was much different. In essence, Old Testament slavery was a type of bankruptcy law. When a person found themselves in a very desperate situation financially, they might sell themselves or even their whole family so that they could pay off the debt. However, this was more like a contract employment that lasted years. In some cases, six years, and on the seventh year, they were set free. That didn't happen too often but because of the year of Jubilee, but for some it was. Otherwise, they would sell themselves for a period of time. And so they became a slave. Another term is a bond servant. And they were acquired when a person voluntarily entered into it and they needed to pay off their debts. And so understand that the Bible never endorses slavery and neither is our passage today an endorsement of slavery. Rather, the Bible recognizes that slavery was a reality. And in this sin-cursed world, and it doesn't ignore the issue. And instead, it actually gives regulations for good treatment by both masters and servants and reveals that they are equal under Jesus Christ. And this bad situation could be made a little bit better if both sides acted according to biblical principles. In fact, it was largely Christians who fought the end of slave trade in history. And if you've heard of William Wilberforce, Google it. If not, go watch the movie Amazing Grace. So coming back to our passage, Peter commands that servants submit to their masters. And we see that submission is not only the external act of obedience, it's an internal attitude of respect. True submission is from the heart. And that's the kind of submission that we're to have to our authorities, including our bosses. And it's really easy to submit to someone who tells you, you know, to do something that we already want to do, right? If your boss tells you, hey, you go home early today, well, that's, you're going to submit very happily. Thank you. Thank you very much. Can I have a couple days off? But this verse tells us to submit even when the bosses are unreasonable. And we must obey even when they tell us to do things that we don't like or that we deem as unfair. And maybe your boss is some ways like a master. I want to emphasize that your boss is not a master. While you're under employment, you should obey your boss's instructions as long as they don't contradict God's word. If they're asking you to lie and do whatever else, then I think you have an issue. However, unlike slaves in the ancient world, you have a legal right to leave. So then get out. We should be good employees. We should work hard. But if your relationship to God is suffering because of a poor, overworked business environment, you may need to leave that situation. But while you're there, we're all called to obey, to have a good attitude. And that means we should not get off work and go complain to our friends on just how terrible our boss is. 
A Christian is a follower of Jesus. We are to live and act like Jesus lived and acted. And Peter knows his readers may be suffering, and so he reminds them of the example of Christ. He lived his life in submission to both earthly and heavenly authorities. In Matthew 22, they sent their disciples to him along uh, with the Herodians. Teacher, they said, we know that you are a man of integrity and that you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are. So tell us what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? You know, here the religious leaders are trying to tempt Jesus to make a statement against Caesar or Rome. That's all they're trying to do. They flattered him. They gave him praise and partiality, hoping to butter him up so that he would let his guard down and share his true opinion uh, that paying taxes is not necessary. And for a lot of us, it would have worked, right? Yeah, I'm glad you asked that question. Yeah, my friends tell me that I am an expert on taxes. Yeah, well, Jesus doesn't let his guard down. But he did share his true opinion, which was pay your taxes. On another occasion, he told Peter that the Lord of the temple himself need not pay taxes. And he was not actually under earthly authorities. And then he proceeded to pay the temple tax anyway. Why? He did these things to be an example for us. And so then Peter concludes this section. He says, when they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. And by his wounds, you've been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the Savior, uh, to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. So what's Peter saying? He says, look, at Jesus suffered too. He was persecuted for doing what was right through no fault of his own. And, and many of us here today, we know the story. He was beaten, he was scourged, he was whipped, he was spit on, he was mocked, he was cursed, he was nailed to the cross to die the most agonizing death possible. And But he didn't revile, do any revile in return. He didn't lash out in return. He uttered no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to the Father. On the eve before these things even took place, Jesus said, not my will, but thine will be done. That is submission. And this is what Peter is trying to tell the Christians who are being persecuted by a government to do right now. Jesus is our example. And when we submit with a good attitude to earthly authorities, we are, in essence, submitting to God. He's the one who put these authorities into place. He is the one who put us under them, and obeying them is obeying him. If the creator of the universe can lower himself to submit to earthly authorities which he did, surely we could submit to. Verse 25 tells us that at one time all of us were straying like sheep. Each of us are going our own way. We're our own authority at that point in time. We did what we wanted and when we wanted. That's what we were doing. We submitted ourselves to absolutely no one. And in a way, we're free. But this freedom does not lead to happiness or to security or to blessing. A sheep wandering around by itself is in very serious danger. And he cannot protect himself. He can't take care of himself. And what will happen to a sheep that goes astray? For a short while, everything's going to be okay. Hey, look at the water. Awesome. Look at the grass. Awesome. But sooner or later, that sheep will face a huge problem. And without the shepherd to help him, that sheep will die. 
And there are many people like these wandering sheep in the world today who are lost, who are lonely, who are aimless, who have no purpose, no calling, no joy. And maybe you're here this morning, you haven't chosen yet to follow Jesus. Well, know this, you have a loving shepherd who cares for you. That he loves you, he loves you so much that he gave his life for you. And that is the best kind of shepherd there is, a shepherd that is willing to die for the sheep. In verse 24, it says, by his wounds you are healed. How can you get this healing? There's one condition. Verse 25, return to the shepherd, the guardian of your souls. What does that mean? It means to submit our lives to him, to accept his authority. It means to repent of our sins, to follow after him. And if you do, he will protect and guard your souls. That's a good trade. Many of you this morning have already done this. Jesus is already your shepherd. But I need to ask this question. Are you living in full submission to him in all areas of your life? And I I have to say this, these are not easy things for any of us to apply. But consider the rebellious spirit of our age and of our country and ask yourself if you're behaving properly towards those in authority over you. Our response to unfair treatment should be submission. Not fighting for our rights, If we put our trust in God, he will look out for us and right all the wrongs. And it's true. Life is not fair. But thank God that Jesus endured unfair treatment on our behalf by bearing our sins so that we can receive eternal life. And in the context of Peter's examples, the three examples there, the people in power are wrong. That's the context that Peter's writing about. That's a given in his argument. And he's writing to believers who find themselves in a bad situation which they cannot easily escape. And Peter is encouraging believers to submit when God takes them through suffering, just like when we trust God in every circumstance. Christ modeled this for us. He trusted God in the midst of truly unjust suffering because he knew God had a purpose for that suffering. And so take a moment and think, just before I pray. Is there any area in your life, no matter how small, that you're not submitting to Christ? We don't submit because the king is our master, but rather because God is our master, and that's the way he wants us to behave. Is there any area that you are keeping to yourself where you're saying, I will give others to the Lord, but not not this one? Dwight Moody said this. Let God have your lives. He can do more with it than you can. Let's pray. Loving Father, I know that this world is not my home. So I pray that you would help me be a faithful witness to you in body, soul, and spirit by resisting the temptations of the flesh. Help me to walk worthy before you in all the days of my life. And I would say that that's not just my prayer, but for many here today.
Thank you that we're not left in the dark, but we have been given a clear teaching on the way that we should behave towards each other in this fallen world, but as well as to those in authority over us. And I pray that I may live in a way that honors you, God. I pray that my life may become a clear testimony to all who I come in contact with. I pray that Jesus has the first place in my heart and in my life is lived as a sacrifice of praise for all that he has done for me. And I know others are praying the same. So Father, thank you that Christ not only gave us the perfect example of how to live a godly life that is pleasing to you, but equipped us by making us new creations in Christ Jesus, by breaking the power of sin in our life and giving us his resurrected life within. Thank you that we can be called for a purpose. So help us to be willing to suffer for Jesus. And that's a huge prayer. Jesus, who loved us so much that he went to the cross in our behalf, help us to humble ourselves. Help us to become obedient to you in all things. And this I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Why don't you stand with me? That was a toughie. I'm sure you're going to be talking. My office door is always open. In ancient time, the one who blessed extended his hands for a blessing. Those receiving a blessing did likewise. I also believe that if you're able-bodied and can help, we've got to stack the chairs after this gathering. Eight high. If you can do that, it would be great. But Soul Sanctuary, as you leave this place, remember this. That you are the chosen by God. Chosen for the high calling of priestly work. Chosen to be holy people. Soul Sanctuary, you are God's instruments to do his work and to speak out for him, to tell others what God has done for you. So now go into the world, live as God's people through the grace of Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen and amen. Now go and live the church. Be blessed, and we'll see you next week.